0: Welcome back to I Hear Dead People, the podcast that celebrates the joy of seeking truth for its own sake with some of the greatest thinkers and teachers of the past. I'm Dorian Positano.
1: And I'm Tom Asacker. Thanks for joining us. 19th century Germany, the fall of the Holy Roman Empire, the first of the three great empires or reichs. It was a time of war, the rise of nationalism radical breakthroughs in science, a wave of disbelief in Christianity and the birth of one of the most dangerous minds in history, Mr. I am dynamite, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche. Oh boy. This should be good. Are you nervous? I'm terrified, mortified, petrified, stupefied. Yeah, yeah. Listen, learn and laugh a little. And then you, I am. I am what I am. The experiencer is the experienced. And
0: it means looking at things which one takes to rob, yes. And suddenly seeing that they're very, very odd. How do you keep your center when everybody around you is losing theirs?
2: And the thing that you call yourself to which things happen,
0: is just something that happens. <laughs> So what's up? (laughs) My blood pressure.
1: Yeah, you've got to be excited for this one.
0: Yeah, maybe a bit too juiced up.
1: What's that? Your fourth cup of coffee? That's not it. It's this guy. Relax, man. He's just another dead guy. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, you keep saying that. It's true. Although he is one of the most memeable and arguably the most misunderstood. Yeah, thanks. So tell me again
0: about him, his background, and what I need to know.
1: Sure. Sure. But please remember that by all accounts, Nietzsche is kind, considerate, and impeccably (laughs) well-mannered. Okay. So, if you remember, he was named after King Friedrich Wilhelm IV of Prussia.
0: That's right. And Nietzsche eventually dropped that middle name, along with most everything else from his heritage.
1: Including his faith and his German citizenship. A
0: bit of a rebel.
1: More of an enigma and an uncompromising one. So don't expect an easygoing conversation, or even a coherent back and forth with this guy. Just go with it and see where it takes you.
0: Got it. What else?
1: Well, his conservative Christian upbringing definitely had an effect on him and heavily influenced his philosophical writing. His father, Karl, was a Lutheran pastor in the village of Rocken, Prussia, which is now northern Germany. Karl's parish had been given to him by that very same King Wilhelm.
0: Sounds like a rockin' place.
1: Assuming that's your idea of a good time, and not surprisingly, young Fritz—that's what he was called for most of his childhood—lived a simple, sheltered life and conformed to the family's strict Protestant values.
0: I'm sure conform is a fitting description. They probably didn't spare the rod back then. And being the pastor's son, I'm guessing Fritz didn't get to live and play like a normal kid.
1: What's a normal kid? Yeah, good point. Anyway, Fritz became known as the little pastor, so that should give you a hint.
0: Yeah, falling in the old man's footsteps, I take it.
1: It may have started that way. His forefathers had been pastors for generations, but Fritz's father suffered a debilitating year-long brain illness, something they called softening of the brain, and died before his fifth birthday. And tragically, his younger brother died soon after, so Fritz's mother who was struggling financially, was forced to move him and his younger sister in with her mother and two sisters, leaving young Fritz in a household filled with devoutly Christian women. Wow. No wonder Mr. Dynamite exploded. I'm sure that experience was quite formative, but Fritz remained a dutiful and obedient child. He tried desperately to live up to his family's expectations, even writing Christian poetry and winning a preaching prize.
0: So the little pastor earned his nickname.
1: As a boy, absolutely. But ultimately, his self-discipline ended in failure. He gave up theology and turned to philology and philosophy, eventually becoming a notorious critic of the metaphysical framework of Christianity.
0: Well, I'm sure his mother wasn't very happy about that. But why call it a failure? And maybe he was just following his bliss. I've read that Joseph Campbell was
1: influenced by Nietzsche. You're right, he was influenced by Nietzsche. In fact, by the start of the 20th century, Nietzsche was recognized as one of the leading thinkers of the age, and he inspired many great people, including Carl Jung, Hermann Hesse, Hannah Arendt, and even Teddy Roosevelt.
0: All amazing dead people. But then again, his work also inspired Hitler and his monstrous Third Reich.
1: That could have been an unintended consequence of Nietzsche's perplexing writing style.
0: Yeah. Or the Nazi psychopath simply missed Nietzsche's point.
1: Or Adolf hijacked Nietzsche's philosophy for his own nefarious purposes, similar to what happened with many of the teaching of our dead guests over the course of human history. Anyway, I'm guessing Nietzsche's glad he didn't live to see that travesty. Yeah. Ask him about it. I'm sure he'd love to chime in.
0: Chime in? Or whack the hell out of it?
1: One never knows with the mustachioed madman. Yeah,
0: that's what I'm concerned about. And... I should probably know this, but what's philology?
1: Well, we learn from Plato that philosophy is love of wisdom. Philo, love, plus Sophia, wisdom. Philology is philo plus logos, the word.
0: Yeah. so the love of words. And what is it
1: then? The study of language, linguistics? The study of the history of language, especially literary texts. Nietzsche was trained in many languages, including Greek, Latin, and Hebrew, so that he could read and make connections between important works like the Bible and Greek literature. Anyway, what you need to remember is that the guy was scary smart. He received a scholarship to a prestigious boarding school when he was a child, and when he was only 24 years old, he became the youngest person ever to hold the chair of classical philology at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Wow. Wow. Talk about a whiz kid. A prodigy in philology. <laughs> anyway, it was kind of a turning point for Nietzsche, so I'd probably start there.
0: Mm. And ask him what, exactly?
1: I don't know. Ask him why he decided to leave his cushy job in academia to become a struggling hermit.
0: <laughs> okay, but I'll probably rephrase it. And then I'll dive into some meaty topics related to his infamous and widely misinterpreted meme quotes like, uh, God is dead, or... Will to power. That's a good one.
1: And don't forget my favorites, the eternal recurrence and become who you are. You got it.
0: I'm here with Friedrich Nietzsche. Mr. Nietzsche, thank you for taking the time to be on I Hear Dead People.
2: Ich höre tote Menschen. I like the name of it. It's audacious. Did it uh, frighten you to undertake this? Did you wonder what people would think?
0: Yeah, a little.
2: Wunderbar! To profit most from life, one must live dangerously. And thank you for the small glass of milk. I see you've done your research.
0: (laughs) You're very welcome, sir. There's a bottle of water for you as well. And you know what? You've reminded me of something that Oscar Wilde wrote. An idea that is not dangerous is unworthy of being called an idea at all. I want to explore that thought with you. So let's go back to 1869. You're 24 years old, and you've been offered a chair in classical philology.
2: At the University of Basel, that is correct.
0: And you taught there for what, 10 years?
2: Uh, Something like that.
0: And why'd you leave? I mean, academia seems like a sweet gig. Money, prestige, stability.
2: Boredom. Is life not a thousand times too short for us to bore ourselves?
0: I read that you left because you were ill. Extremely bad headaches and all.
2: At all stages of life, the surplus of pain in my body has been great. However, neither my physical nor financial state would ever chain my will. Weariness of spirit compelled me to leave that ossifying system. That is all.
0: Okay. So you were bored. But you've written that there is value in boredom.
2: Of course, there's value in all suffering if you understand it and use it rather than block its powerful impetus. Boredom and despair are signals to change and grow, and not as Kierkegaard would have you believe, to think further and further and eventually submit to the belief in a personal God for relief.
0: Well, as you've said, whatever doesn't kill you only makes you stronger.
2: Indeed, my own illness has been my greatest boon. It unblocked me. It gave me the courage to be myself.
0: Okay, but I still don't I still don't get it. How does boredom make you stronger? And by the way, unlike the past, it's pretty much impossible to be bored today with things like, you know, the smartphone.
2: <laughs> that is an amazing device, and it's terrifying. A person who blocks all boredom from his or her life also blocks access to his or her deepest self and the water that flows from its fountain. And so I would say that smartphone is an outrageous misnomer. Hypnotic, herd like distraction to your lifeless screen destroys the sensitivity of the mind.
0: <laughs> so not very smart at all.
2: Mindless and uninspired. Stupid.
0: Okay, then. So I read that you wrote your first book as a professor, and it kind of bombed.
2: Indeed. The ideas in The Birth of Tragedy were sound- but the writing was not very good.
0: I see. I know that ancient Greek culture informed a lot of your ideas in that book. And so you know, we recently sat down with Plato to discuss what it means to live a good life.
2: Interesting. Did you interview the patron saint of rational inquiry as well? Who? Socrates.
0: Eh, unfortunately not.
2: That's too bad. He started it all.
0: Started what exactly?
2: the obsession with knowledge and the ultimate trust in human thought. It has created an intellectual distancing from the dynamic world, a life-denying zeitgeist that has grown bloodless and cold.
0: And that obsession is what you refer to as the will to truth.
2: Yes, the view of truth as the highest good and the idea that knowledge can be the force that moves the world. It, it, It is ridiculous. Truth is a concept of constancy, while life is a concept of change. This will to truth is simply the will to stay safe, to belong and to survive. It's it's a world weary view of life, drained of vitality, which tries to expel the fear of truly living with knowing.
0: Okay, something's confusing me a little bit. In some of your writing, you praise Socrates for his courage and wisdom. But at other times you belittle him, calling him a theoretical man and, you know, an ugly clown. I mean, why is that?
2: It is hard enough to remember my own opinions without also remembering my reasons for them. Yes, I appreciate Socrates' playful approach, his gay kind of seriousness. But was he actually curious and passionate about the wonder and mystery of life, the wilderness of mirrors? The inherent aliveness of this world did he have a hunger for life or was he disenchanted and simply trying to impress people to solidify his standing rendering people impotent with his power of rational argument and steering them toward his particular ideas
0: the wilderness of mirrors
2: yes the plurality of perspectives which are necessarily biased conceived within a language, within a culture, within a perspective, within the constraints and expectations of a theory.
0: I see. There are no facts, only interpretations. And when you say his particular idea or theory, you mean what exactly?
2: That reason leads to virtue and inevitably that is what leads to happiness. Do you think man has become more virtuous and happier because of the collective increase in knowledge and his pursuit of an objective, universal morality?
0: Hmm. Well, I'm not sure, although it seems to me that I was happier when I knew a lot less.
2: As when you were a child?
0: I wasn't thinking of it exactly that way, but yeah, I guess so.
2: You were probably your most virtuous during that time as well although you had no thoughts about it. One would make a little boy stare if one asked him, would you like to become virtuous? (laughs) Man's maturity is to have regained the seriousness that he had as a child at play. It is the final metamorphosis of the soul. An act of self-creation when, like a child, we let go of the past and the future and discover the world for the first time, excited by the moment, by possibility and play. The child is not weighed down by rules and values. The child discovers for themselves the meaning in things. Innocence is the child and forgetfulness, a, a new beginning, a game, a self-rolling wheel, a first movement, a sacred yes. Do you see? For the game of creation, a sacred yes is needed.
0: Hmm. And so I take it you don't subscribe to Socrates' assertion about examining life.
2: Why would you think that? Of course, the structure and order that comes from the Apollonian impulse, from language and rational thought, is necessary to manifest one's creative spirit. The child begins life impulsive and reactive, but the child like ubermensch or overman is highly aware and quite reflective. However, incessant self-reflection and questioning like that of Hamlet kills action and strips life of the depths of beauty and the fluidity of authentic, passionate, Expression.
0: I see. Well, if I understand correctly, you use the Greek gods Apollo and Dionysus as metaphors for ways of being. The Apollonian way values order and harmony and favors reason and rational thinking over feeling and intuition. Now, by contrast, the Dionysian essence is the celebration of our chaotic nature and the ecstasy and unique contribution to the world found in creativity and self-transformation. So I assume you're saying that we need both, is that right?
2: It's not a matter of need. Life always involves a struggle between Dionysian and Apollonian elements, each battling for control over the existence of humanity. Without the Apollonian structure, the ability to think rationally, one's mind will be lost in the absurdity of existence. And saying yes to life, especially in its strangest and hardest problems, will appear pointless. Hmm. However, too much knowledge is an agony. And without the Dionysian energy, without a tragic awareness of life, along with a sense of urgency and a divine madness and ecstatic expression of this life force, you end up with a world like yours, mesmerized by electronic reproductions of life, distanced by glass screens and consumed by self-concern and malaise.
0: Wow. Okay, that's pretty harsh.
2: Am I wrong? Do you not feel life beginning to stagnate and decay?
0: I suppose you have a point. So, madness and ecstasy, you know, this Dionysian spirit, sounds a lot like a rave.
2: A shared frenzy of self-forgetting.
0: Which is released through music and dance.
2: And by being one with others and with nature. In fact, our greatest experiences are our quietest moments. Have you ever been to the Swiss Alps? Have you walked along the shores of Lake Silphoplana, 6,000 feet beyond man and time and breathed the pure open air?
0: I haven't, no.
2: Go and you will feel the life force, the unity and awe of the Dionysian spirit moving through your body. Plus, all truly great thoughts are conceived while walking. But yes, music is the most Dionysian manifestation of the creative spirit, and without it, life would be nothing, a mistake. We should consider every day lost on which we have not danced at least once.
0: Hmm, Interesting. You know, the life force you mentioned reminds me of Dylan Thomas's phrase, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower.
2: Beautifully expressed.
0: So before we move on, and just so I'm clear on this, are you saying that Socrates and Plato were wrong? That intellect will not help us achieve the so-called good life?
2: Help us? Of course it will help us. However, knowledge is a tool of life, and so thought should serve us. We should not serve thought. (laughs) To be a slave to thought and question everything to elevate logic and skepticism to the very top of society's values and strive towards some philosophical or metaphysical ideal, whether Plato's forms or Christianity's heaven, is tantamount to death, draining life of its sensuous force.
0: You know, we had Jesus on the podcast as well, and I'm not sure how he'd feel about your ideas.
2: If you're not sure, then you did not understand him. But that's okay. Neither did his apostles, with Paul being the most confused.
0: (laughs) I take it you don't get invited to many Christmas parties.
2: Don't get me started. The very word Christianity is a misunderstanding. (laughs) At bottom, there was only one Christian and he died on the cross for only a true, powerful person, one who is possessed of the innermost light and lives in this truth, can offer universal love and acceptance to humanity. Jesus taught and showed mankind a way of life that would lead them to happiness on earth, not to happiness in a fictional afterlife. He was aware that the kingdom of heaven is a state of the heart. And so he abolished not only all resentment and guilt, but also all separation between God and man. And he lived his this unity of God and man as his glad tidings.
0: No, you're right. I did get that understanding from him. And so what should we focus on and aim for then?
2: Jesus knew that it was only by a way of life that one could feel one's self, divine, blessed, evangelical, a child of God. So focus on your innermost truth and on this world, the material world of the flesh and the senses, and remain faithful to it. It is not a philosophical idea or concept. It is the only world that exists for us.
0: So what you see is what you get?
2: That is correct.
0: Are you saying that the only reality is the reality we can perceive?
2: Can one perceive the light of love? Of course not. But it is certainly part of one's reality and truly the most important part. So yes, there is a world that is beyond one's senses, regardless of one's perception or understanding of it. There's also a subjective world of experience, and it is that world that one can be certain exists and that one can effect. However, it is not what one must tolerate. And he who disagrees with me on this point, I regard as infected. Certainly, there are no unfiltered experiences, but we must dispense with the flawed idea that there is some other more true world an intelligible realm of unchanging perfection, and that this earthly world is secondary, a flawed ill fated shadow of the ideal, which should be tolerated or turned away from.
0: Hmm. Okay. And so we should aspire to what then? The creation of heaven
2: on earth? A stable and permanent reality, perfection, utopia. And whose vision is this perfect vision of the future? Yours, mine, the powers that be?
0: Yeah, well, that hasn't worked out so well in the past.
2: To say the least, and so consider the animal kingdom of which man is a part, albeit as an as yet undetermined animal. Is nature not spontaneous, growing in complexity and beauty and in utter disorder Thought cannot possibly bring order out of this chaos. Hmm. For man to intellectualize life and search for rules and uniformity in a realm where none of these are to be found kills life's animating creative tension and spirit. Let us love this life as it is and live in accordance with nature and be enthusiastic and make of it and of our creative selves the best that we can, chaos and all.
0: Or, as you've written, one must have chaos in oneself to give rise to a dancing star.
2: Yes, the fundamental essence from which dreams are born, the inherent, mad, creative potential of every individual which, when sought and released through self-knowledge, will result in one's unique contribution to the world and a feeling of divine happiness. Do you see? The true person wants danger and play. An experience beyond oneself. A sense of adventure where one strives to overcome human limitations. Without it, we are destined to wrestle with mental ghosts.
0: Mental ghosts? What mental ghosts?
2: The so-called transcendent meaning or purpose of life. It's an illusion.
0: Well, you are nihilism's poster boy, after all.
2: Who said that?
0: I don't know, I read it somewhere.
2: Any idiot can write. That does not mean that they understand. Let me ask you, if someone points to the conditions that will lead to a great war, does that make that person a warmonger? Of course not. The passive nihilist is faced with conditions that I made very clear. And instead of embracing chaos and the will to power, they have succumbed to pessimism and are despairing and world weary. They negate life. They slander it.
0: Sir, okay, I want to understand what you mean by the will to power and the overman, because there's some debate about whether or not you inspired monsters like the Nazis.
2: Interesting.
0: But first I'd like to understand the conditions that you're referring to that have given rise to this nihilistic feeling of despair.
2: Ah, yes, your so-called crisis of meaning, which I praise, by the way. It is a moment of the deepest self-reflection of humanity. Now, whether you recover from it, whether you become masters of this crisis and create new forms of guidance for living is a question of your strength. And so what has caused this vacuum of meaning? Isn't it obvious? The dramatic rise of intellectual and scientific progress, which has offered answers to questions that religion traditionally provided for much of the world.
0: Hence your infamous declaration that God is dead.
2: And that God remains dead and that we have killed him with the awakening of our intellectual faculties. Powers which have allowed us to become progressively self-directed in moral and scientific thought and action. And so of what use is a belief in God?
0: Is that a rhetorical question?
2: Not at all.
0: I suppose that depends on what your idea of God is. You know, let's not go there, because I'm pretty sure you'll ascribe some purpose or utility to whatever definition I give you.
2: Yes, an incentive to believe, so you do understand, you do see the bad faith in it. Sehr gut.
0: What do you mean by that?
2: Give me an idea of God, other than the Abrahamic version, and perhaps you should see what I mean.
0: Okay. How about the idea that God is everything, and that we're simply... Part of that magnificent whole, like temporary waves on a great ocean.
2: Ah, a lovely metaphor. Similar to the Apollonian and the Dionysian, separate and united. So I agree with you that reality is one. But as they always seem to do, people have misunderstood and thus created two distinct realities hmm. temporary waves, everlasting ocean and is one more desirable to them than the other of course that is why they try to access this hinterwelt ocean something beyond reality that feels good through meditation and psychedelics do you see this earthly world of experiences is not what people would like it to be it doesn't comfort them And so they make themselves feel better by creating an illusory world to relieve their disappointments, their anxieties and fears to help them cope.
0: Well, let's say that's true. So what? What's wrong with believing in something that brings you comfort?
2: It's the same thing that's wrong with alcohol. It numbs your pain and creates a state of detachment and complacency, which prevents you from thriving and becoming who you are. There have been two great narcotics in civilization which have sapped people of the will to improve their lives religion and alcohol. And by religion, I mean faith in and reverence for a truer world than the world of the here and now. And that includes those who have made science their god and hold out hope for some ideal future. Hope is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man.
0: Really? And becoming who I am, what's that supposed to mean? Become the ocean?
2: The tranquil ocean should not be sought as an unceasing state of being. Rather, one should enjoy it in times of peace as a way to gather oneself for future struggles and challenges. The wave is an expression of the ocean. So be that expression. Learn and become who you are. True to your highest potential as a human being, the only people motivated to lie their way out of reality are those who suffer from it.
0: Hmm. And is that what you mean by the will to power?
2: Do you know what it feels like to finally make your own decisions? No voice in your head telling you what to do and when to do it. No questioning yourself, no worry or guilt to do whatever you will, whenever you will, to stretch and to grow. This is power. The will to be autonomous, to embrace struggle and challenge and to express yourself fully. Do you see? Whether it is a wave like human being like yourself, the primal urge of the stallion which runs not for the sake of hunger, but only to use and to strengthen its muscles or the blade of grass that pushes its way through the pavement. The will to power is what animates the world. I see. And as far as the overman, it is not, as I have heard some people suggest, an evolutionary endpoint of man, a uh, homogeneous superior race. It is a way of being. It's striving and self-overcoming. The acceptance of all that is for the love of life itself and the love of one's fate in all aspects.
0: Mm. So then how did the Nazis get it so wrong?
2: They projected their prejudices into my work, helped by my mediocre little sister, Elizabeth. Mm. I loved her dearly, but after my death, she took over my estate and being the unoriginal opportunist that she was, rearranged my notes into a Nazi cookbook titled The Will to Power. However, anyone who knows me is well aware that it was a lie, a butcher text that tarnished my name. The Nazis stood for what I loathed. I have repeatedly said that man must move forward beyond dogma, beyond ethnocentrism. I abhor militarism, obedience to authority, subordination of the population to nationalism, and I warned against an era in which people sought new isms that would give the herd a sense of security and belonging. I see. Plus, did I not say that one day my name would be linked to the memory of something monstrous, to a crisis like none there has been on earth?
0: You did. And so I take it that you are fundamentally against using one's will to power over people, to control
2: them. Over man means over oneself. Cruelty and dominance over others is a sign that one lacks power, for your real self lies not deep within you, but high above you.
0: Hmm. So then Socrates' proclamation to know thyself was sound.
2: If you do not wish to simply become part of the herd, then the difficult journey of self-discovery and liberation is critical.
0: But the people around you may not like your will to power. I mean, look what happened to Socrates.
2: Indeed. And to Jesus. Such is the tragedy of the human condition. And that's why I say you must live dangerously. There is no way to help any soul so long as it remains shackled with the chains of opinion and fear. Hmm. Make no mistake. Those who are seen dancing will always be thought to be insane by those who cannot hear the music.
0: You know, it's strange. I do feel what you're saying, but I don't really know what to do with it.
2: It is quite difficult to make intelligible and actionable because will to power is a unique state of mind, one of environment, perspective, and uninhibited self expression. And again, it is not power over others, it is a struggle for power over oneself. Mm. Rather than hopelessly fleeing from the will, as with Schopenhauer, one seeks to harness it and master it. I am thankful, however, that you at least feel it.
0: I do. But as I've said, I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to be doing.
2: First, recognize that you are in fact choosing your life. It is not something happening to you that you must accept. And then look back on your life. What have you truly loved up to now? What has made you feel alive and drawn your soul aloft? The answer is there in that way of being.
0: Do you have a process or method that someone can use to discover it?
2: No one can build you the bridge on which you and only you must cross the river of life. You have your way. I have my way. As for the right way, the correct way, and the only way, it does not exist. (laughs) In fact, in one person, a particular way of living could look like it's opposite in another person. That bridge is your why. And if we have our own why of life, we shall get along with almost any how.
0: Okay, so how can I know that I'm living
2: my why? Take a good look at your life and then ask yourself, and please be brutally honest and think about the worst period of your life, your lowest of lows. If after I die, I find that I have to live my same life over and over again for eternity, how would I feel?
0: Ah, the eternal recurrence. You know, It reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day, although it was kind of an analogy for boredom and the dread of unchanging drudgery. Anyway, I have this passage in your book, Dog Eared, and I'd like to read it aloud, if that's okay. Of course. Okay. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more and there will be nothing new in it. But every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you, all in the same succession and sequence. Even this spider and this moonlight between the trees, and even this moment and I myself, the eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again, and you with it, speck of dust, would you not throw yourself down and gnash your teeth and curse the demon who spoke thus? Or how well disposed would you have to become to yourself and to life to crave nothing more fervently than this ultimate eternal confirmation and seal?" That is so beautifully written and powerful.
2: Thank you. And if you were to embrace that idea. Then you will have exercised your will to power.
0: Yeah. I don't know many people who could.
2: Who do you think I am speaking to the masses? I do not write for shy deer, the fearful and lazy. There are those unique few who must leave the fear behind and listen to their higher selves. Those are the brave souls to whom I speak. And to them, I say amor fati, love your fate, which is in fact your life.
0: Right. And you mentioned Schopenhauer. It's my understanding that you've read every word he has written and that he was a former idol of yours. However, there seems to be a theme that you return to throughout your career as a thinker, one that denies Schopenhauer and opposes his worldview and his idea of compassion as the highest aim. Now, I should say, to be clear, I don't feel this way about you, but it's led many people to believe that you're a bit of an asshole, you know, callous and egoistic, dare I say a sociopath.
2: I see. Now, let me be clear. First, I mistrust all systematizers and I avoid them. Whether it is Schopenhauer with his call for midlight, suffering with, to be the virtue The foundation and source of all virtues or the ideas of various life-denying ascetics who seek to empty us of all sensation the will to system is a lack of integrity individuals should be free to choose their own path in life rather than being compelled to follow a particular set of beliefs or values now that said have you read my work and examined my personal values
0: not all of it no
2: If you had, you would have discovered that my idea of morality is one of self-realization and a flourishing unique to each individual. I suggest that one looks within for their values. And so you know, mine include friendship, honesty, generosity, and courage.
0: But not compassion.
2: Uh, Let us engage in another more realistic thought experiment. I would like you to think of your son or daughter. Or perhaps a brother or sister. Can you do that?
0: Yeah, sure.
2: Good. And for the sake of our inquiry, let us assume that this person is in a life denying state of existence, simply surviving and not truly living. He or she lives in your home, staring at screens for most of their waking hours. They find life pointless and a burden and simply want to be left alone to enjoy their simple pleasures. Now how do you feel about that would you suffer with that person i do not think so would you pity him or her of course not pity is disrespectful and it preserves things that are right for decline and so why would you suffer with or pity someone else's child or sibling
0: okay wait what's there to be compassionate about i mean that hypothetical person doesn't seem to be suffering instead Let's say that he or she was a gifted athlete and lost their arm in some kind of accident.
2: Perfect. And as their father or brother or friend, would you now suffer with them in your psyche and way of being, or would you seek to elevate their spirit with your strength and resolve? Compassion makes suffering contagious and therefore stands opposed to the tonic emotions which heighten vitality.
0: This is still a bit confusing to me.
2: Please don't be confused. I am not saying to be an icy, hard-hearted fellow. The word Dionysian means an urge to unity, a reaching out beyond personality, the great pantheistic sharing of both joy and suffering. The great lack of imagination from which the mediocre man suffers means that he is unable to feel his way into other beings and thus He participates as little as possible in their fortunes and sufferings. Compassion is a double-edged sword that can either nourish or drain life depending on how it is expressed and received. Compassionate actions such as helping those in need can be a source of strength and vitality, but there's also the potential for compassion to be used as a means of dismissing or even exploiting and manipulating others. It is important to cultivate compassion in a healthy and self-aware way rather than being driven solely by a sense of pity or resentment towards others.
0: Well, we're running a bit short on time here, and I have a few other things I want to talk to you about. And one actually does involve compassion. So I read that when you were in your mid-40s and living in Italy, You saw a coachman viciously beating his horse because it wouldn't move forward. And so you ran to the animal and yelled, no, please don't hurt her. And then you threw your arms around the horse's neck and collapsed, weeping. Did that really
2: happen? That's what they tell me. I cannot remember anything from the day forward. But this I can assure you. Man is the cruelest animal.
0: Well... Let's try to end on a more positive note, shall we? I've read that you were never married. Is that correct?
2: Is that your attempted humor?
0: Maybe. Although I do want to know your thoughts about love and marriage.
2: Are you sure? Remember, as you have pointed out, I have never been married, although I proposed marriage multiple times to the same woman and was summarily rejected. And so my views are most definitely conflicted.
0: You obviously believe that she was the right person for you. So can you give us your perspective on the matter and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom?
2: Okay. Well, first, uh, friendship is the highest form of love. Great friends inspire each other and can even push each other towards the ideal of the overman. Although, as far as I can tell, the perfect woman is a higher type of human being than the perfect man. Anyway, you must ask yourself, Is my significant other a good friend, a person of high character who is curious and uninterested in entertaining the norm? Do I enjoy spending time with him or her? Do I believe I'm going to enjoy talking with this person up into my old age? Because everything else in marriage is transitory, but most of the time you are together will be devoted to conversation.
0: That makes sense. And when you say everything else is transitory, you're talking about what?
2: Why do you ask? You know what I'm referring to? Sensuality, which often makes love grow too quickly so that the root remains weak and is easy to pull out.
0: Yeah, but that's just your opinion, right?
2: Yes, and sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't want their illusions destroyed. Love can be the most angelic instinct and the greatest stimulus of life but too frequently love manifests as a greedy and decadent desire for possession. Lovers all too often act like the dragon guarding his golden hoard and treat a beloved like an exotic bird as something also, which must be cooped up to prevent it flying away. And so being interested in one another is infinitely more important to the success of a relationship than being attracted to each other. I see. Just remember that it is the desire, not the desired, that we love and that it is not a lack of love, but a lack of friendship that makes unhappy marriages.
0: Hmm. Well, thank you, Mr. Nietzsche. And one final question. We ask it of all our guests. If you could place a short message on a marquee sign in front of every school in the world, what would it say? Other than don't drink.
2: Uh huh. I'm the king of short messages. It is my ambition to say in 10 sentences what others say in a whole book. So what would I place on those signs? Use your suffering and create something beautiful.
0: Well, Friedrich Nietzsche, thank you for joining. I hear dead people. It's been a true pleasure.
2: You are very welcome. And please, do not be coaxed into complacency. Live dangerously, my friend.
0: You got it. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in to this episode of I Hear Dead People. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and consider giving us a rating and leaving a review. Five stars would be great. This helps other listeners find the show. And please let us know what you think by visiting our website at IHearDeadPeople.com. You can submit comments and questions, give us suggestions for future dead guests, and learn more about and support the show. In our next episode, we'll be unpacking our conversation with Nietzsche. It should be quite interesting. So please tune in. And until then, become who you are.